Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. This week, we'll spend some time discussing my latest articles, as usual, as well as listeners' questions. Many of the topics this week are quite timely, and with that, let's jump into the articles. The first piece I want to highlight is an article I wrote for the Jewish Press on April 28th entitled, Shidduchim and Money, Should Finances Play a Role in Who My Child Decides to Marry? For those who don't know, a shidduch is, a, is dating for the purpose of marriage. So as a financial advisor and a retired matchmaker, I am passionate about this topic. It is also one that I would feel I feel discussed openly, more openly in the dating world. Yes, finances are very important consideration when dating. In fact, I would rank it among the most important criteria. Stresses around money are one of the leading causes of divorce, and not discussing these matters honestly and openly may set a newly married couple up for failure. Let's discuss some of the key points around this topic. First, why finances are important. As I say frequently to clients and in my writings, money is a tool and not a scorecard. One's mission in life should not be to accumulate as much money as possible. That goal in and of itself is not a worthwhile endeavor and is one that will likely lead to misery. However, it's undeniable that money is instrumental in living the life that you want. I have friends that live in small apartments with one car that never go out to eat, rarely go on vacation, and they couldn't be happier. On the other hand, I have friends that have multiple houses, luxury cars, go out to brunch every day, and take multiple lavish vacations every year. They are also happy. There's no one correct way to live. Whatever road you choose can be a life filled with Torah, mitzvot, purpose, and meaning. It's just important to be upfront about this type of lifestyle that you're looking for and the role money plays in attaining that lifestyle. Second, being practical with attaining the lifestyle you want. It's important for young adults to understand that choices have consequences. If you enjoy spending Pesach in a resort every year, living in a large home, or buying your entire family new clothes and jewelry every yuntif, then you have a few options. You either need to make a lot more money, marry someone who does, or have parents or in-laws who will cover the cost of your life. Stated plainly, If neither you nor your spouse has family willing to support you, and you both have modestly paying jobs, then achieving the aforementioned lifestyle will be a challenge. It's important to understand this reality. Similarly, if learning Torah half the day is a goal, then obtaining a high-paying career in order to afford certain luxuries will be a challenge. Few high-paying career paths outside of the family business provide that level of flexibility. Naturally, there are exceptions to every rule. But generally speaking, there is no magic formula. The money to cover these expenses needs to come from somewhere, and taking out debt to make these payments is a horrific decision. Third, making sure you are on the same page about money as the person you are dating. After spending years shidduch dating myself, I can attest to the fact that no two people have the same path to finding their mates. For some, it comes seemingly easily and quickly. While others continue to date countless people over the course of many years before finding a suitable match. 
Regardless of the path, an essential component to everyone's shidduch journey should be a frank discussion about personal finance. These discussions may seem less romantic than sharing your hopes, dreams, and visions of how your future Shabbos table will look, but they are just as important. Remember, life is not a fairy tale romance film concocted by Hollywood. At times, life will be challenging, and not being on the same page about money will make things a lot tougher. Here are some questions that should be discussed once the relationship has gotten sufficiently serious. And note, not on the first few dates where it may be considered rude to bring this up. First, how much income do you each make? Two, do you have any debt? And if so, how much and what is the game plan to pay it off? Three, what is the ballpark of your monthly expenses, including housing, food, car payments, debt payments, and discretionary items? Four, can you cover these expenses on your own? Will you have an ongoing financial support from family members, or does something need to change? For example, you need to spend less money, pursue different career paths, or are the two of you not a suitable match? And five, will you have a surplus of monthly cash to save and invest for future goals, like a down payment on a home, retirement, etc.? There's a whole host of more in-depth questions that can be discussed, but getting into detailed discussions on investments and the intricacies of financial planning may be premature at this point. The above questions can help assess if you're both the same on the same page financially or if you need to reconsider the shidduch. And next, remember that money can be a blessing and a curse. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that while money can be immensely helpful, it can also be a huge burden. If you're dating someone of means and family financial support will be provided, this type of assistance often comes with strings attached. I'm sure that all readers can point to the instances from their own lives of how money has torn families apart. It's important for each party to do their own due diligence on the money dynamics involved in the family you are marrying into. The best situation for a newly married couple is to be financially independent. This will allow you to live the life you want on your own terms without being at the mercy of a third party. Financial freedom is the standard that all families should aspire to. And finally, how to emphasize these issues to your children. Many people wonder how to impart this money advice before their children start seriously dating for marriage. I don't hold myself out as being an ex expert on interim family communications. As a parent, I acknowledge that we all have challenges in this regard. However, I will still offer a few suggestions. The first is obvious, which is just to talk to them, your kids, about the points I just mentioned. They may be willing to sit down and have a healthy exchange of ideas. However, kids have minds and opinions of their, of their own, oftentimes very strong ones, and taking direction from mom and dad is not always well received. A seemingly less aggressive way of imparting your thoughts is to share this podcast or the corresponding article I wrote on this subject via email, saying, thought this was interesting. Speaking from personal experience, introducing an impartial third party can feel less antagonistic to your kids, and they may be more receptive. Remember, your kids are paying attention, even if it doesn't always seem that way. Casually letting them know what's on your mind may be the best way to get them thinking about this important topic as they embark on the shidduch dating world. My next piece that I wrote was an article for Forbes. It also happened to be published on April, April 28th, and it was entitled Spring Cleaning Your Finances, a 10-point checklist. And I'll spend a few minutes discussing this in some detail as well. You know, with the craziness of tax season now behind us, we're rapidly approaching the slow and sleepy summer season. But before investors check out for a few months, a bit of financial spring cleaning probably makes sense. After all, 
periodically reviewing your finances can help ensure you are on track to achieve your goals and minimize the chances of any costly oversights. Now, now share 10 areas worth assessing and adjusting where appropriate. Feel free to grab a pen and paper and jot down these 10 items down. The first is review your cash flow. Gathering your latest bank statement and credit card bills to review line by line is not the most glamorous task. However, taking a few hours to go through this process at least once a year is foundational to, into ensuring that you are making the most of your money. This is a great time to cut wasteful spending like memberships and subscriptions that you don't use or assess discretionary spending to determine if there are any activities such as eating out that you'd like to minimize. Freeing up cash from unnecessary expenses can give you the flexibility to spend more in areas that are meaningful for you like family, vacation, or making necessary home improvements. <clears throat> Alternatively, if these extra funds are not needed for expenses that can be invested for your future. Reassess your debt. If you have debt, it's a good time to review it from time to time. There may be opportunities to consolidate it or possibly transfer the balance to a 0% promotional opportunity. There's no reason to pay 15 to 20% on a credit card debt if you can avoid it. Three, bolster emergency fund. The Federal Reserve is actively working to get inflation under control. The unfortunate consequences of raising rates and slowing down the economy is job loss. Now would be a good time to ensure that you have an adequate emergency fund. A rule of thumb is three to six months worth of expenses, that, though you may consider keeping more depending on your situation. It's hard to plan for unexpected job loss and a prolonged unemployment. However, a robust emergency fund can significantly mitigate that risk. Four, consolidate your accounts. Tax season may have been a rude awakening for how unorganized your finances are. Trying to locate 1099s at a variety of different institutions is time-consuming and frustrating. It also makes managing and tracking your investments difficult. In that vein, unless there is a specific reason that you have a scattered account, your investment should be held at one or two investment firms. The only obvious exception are your current employer's retirement plan and your checking account. Going forward, monitoring, tracking, and making changes and collecting tax documents will be far more seamless with all your investments held at one firm. Five, streamline your investments. On the same theme of organizing your accounts to help during tax time, you should assess if you have a tax-efficient investment portfolio. Indications of inefficiency, including high turnover within your portfolio, with many trades being placed that may potentially lead to a higher tax bill. Additionally, if you were issued several K-1s, this may delay your tax filing. Now is a good time to reconsider these suboptimal tax holdings and determine if you can implement your investment strategy more tax efficiently. Streamlining your investments may provide far fewer headaches next tax season. And six, plan for future tax seasons. It's worth considering tax loss harvesting and proper asset location strategies to potentially help with future taxes. Tax loss harvesting involves selling securities at a loss to help offset taxes owed from capital gains in taxable investment accounts. Even though the market has appreciated a bit this year, it is still well off its highs, which may offer the ability to use losses to offset gains. Additionally, asset location is a strategy where investors intentionally choose where they park their investments to maximize their tax benefit. This includes putting more tax inefficient investments into tax advantage accounts like 401k, 403b, 529 college savings accounts, and HSAs to name just a few.
Seven, analyze pay stubs. In line with the previous point I just made, an important step to maximize your tax benefit is reviewing your pay stub. There are various benefits available through your employer, including an FSA, which is a flexible savings account, HSA, which is a health savings account, and 401k with a possible match. It may be worth sending a short email to your colleagues in HR to understand all the available tax advantage opportunities. After all, why not take full advantage of all the benefits and perks that your employer has to offer? Eight, put excess cash to work. Inertia is one of the biggest obstacles to financial success. The inability to make decisions and take action when necessary can impact various aspects of personal finance. One example of imprudent inertia is sitting on excessive cash instead of investing it. Holding too much cash ensures that you're losing money due to inflation. You should invest invest any excess cash not needed to pay your expenses or emergency fund. This will more effectively grow your nest egg. Automating the process of contributing to your investment accounts will remove emotional and procrastination from your investment process. Nine, take insurance coverage inventory. At each stage of life, there are different types of insurance coverage that a family may require. For example, having kids may precipitate more life insurance coverage. On the other hand, when your kids move out of the house and become self-sufficient, you may not need as much life insurance coverage, but may need to consider your long-term care insurance options. Taking annual inventory of all your insurance needs, including life, disability, long-term care, umbrella, auto, home, renters, and others, is a worthwhile exercise. It helps confirm that you have adequate coverage. It also will allow you to eliminate insurance that is no longer necessary, which will free up cash flow to spend on other areas of your life. And finally, number 10, review your beneficiaries. Doing a quick scan every year of the beneficiaries named on all your retirement accounts and insurance policies can save a lot of headache and heartache later. When an account or policy has beneficiaries attached to it, those assets pass outside of one's will. In order to ensure that your money is going to the people that you want, want upon your death, it's worth reviewing your beneficiary designations periodically. The last thing anyone wants is the proceeds from these accounts going to an ex-spouse. With all that being said, similar to spring cleaning your home, financial maintenance is not the most glamorous or enjoyable activity. However, taking the time to work through the list with your spouse and financial advisor can help tie up any loose ends with your finances. This process will allow you to enter the summer months with peace of mind knowing that your finances are in order. Hey, that's all for the articles this week. Remember, you can find the links to all the articles I mentioned today in the episode's notes section to this podcast. You can also be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. You speak a lot about strategies to make the most of your money, such as moving, starting a side hustle, or living within your means. The reality is my wife and I, both in Chinuch, which is teaching in a Jewish school or yeshiva, are taking care of family members in New York. In other words, we'll never develop a substantial nest egg or be able to fully afford yeshiva tuition or retire. What strat strategies do you recommend for people like us? So this is probably a good time to highlight all the wonderful charitable work the Jewish community does that may not get emphasized enough. Since I'm a member of the Jewish community, I can personally attest to this great work. And I'm sure other communities also have wonderful charities to give a boost to folks who need a bit of help. Regardless of your situation or needs, there's most definitely nonprofit 
can probably help you out. One of the wonderful things about mankind is that there are safety nets for those in need. For specific recommendations to address your personal situation, you may want to reach out to your local rabbi or individual you go to for spiritual guidance, and they should be able to point you in the right direction. With so much constant negativity in the world and on the news, the fact that many people are so generous with money and their time to help out those who are struggling is important to emphasize. Next question. After years of discipline investing, in March of 2020, I sold all my stocks and have been sitting in cash since. I've been too afraid to get back into the market. I lost like 25%. I sold at also the at almost the worst possible time. What do you recommend I do? For context, I'm 46 years old and we won't be retiring for at least two decades. It's a shame how someone can seemingly do the right thing for decades and make the one bad mistake that can literally wipe out many years of profits. The answer is clear. Get back into the market. There are significant psychological hurdles with pulling the trigger or implementing a sensible portfolio. Then hire someone to help you devise a plan to get out of cash. Dwelling on your misfortune or bad decisions is the wrong approach. You have to get moving and get back into the market ASAP. And this is my best guidance for you. How much should I spend on a bar mitzvah gift? This is a great question with no specific answer. What I will say is many folks like to give a multiple of 18. Every Hebrew letter has a corresponding numerical value. So the number 18 corresponds to the numerical value of the Hebrew word chai, which means life. Giving a multiple of chai or 18 is considered good luck and is customary in many Jewish circles. Beyond giving a multiple of chai, your gift should depend how many people from your family go to the bar mitzvah and perhaps the type of bar mitzvah. So if it's a luncheon at the synagogue and only you and your wife go, $36 to $72 seems reasonable. If it's a quarter million dollar weekend bar mitzvah, and yes, there are some folks that spend this type of money on a bar mitzvah, then for the same two people, you may want to give three to five times that amount. Alternatively, you can give a gift with the approximate dollar values I have mentioned. There are all reasonable guidelines, but there are no hard and fast rules, so do the best you can. My grandfather gifted me Disney stock on my bar mitzvah. This was a couple decades ago, and my grandfather is no longer with us. The question is, I can really use this money for down payment on a house, but I can't. I just can't bring myself to sell the stock for nostalgic reasons. Any advice? This question actually comes up quite frequently, and I found that the best way to approach this question is to ask what your Zaidi or grandfather's intent was with this gift. Was it to hold forever, or was it to help you in life? I imagine that Zaidi was hoping that stock would go up so you can eventually sell it and help with future expenses. The proceeds of selling Disney to build a home to raise your family in a life of Torah and mitzvot seems like exactly what your grandfather would have wanted. I would sell the stock with that perspective in mind. Hopefully that will help you move forward. I'm building a house and have no money left. Might as well go broke and add a pool by borrowing more money. Does that make sense? It makes very little sense. You should always spend money within your means. Also, pools are headaches and huge potential liability. Unless you live in a hot climate where it's necessary, find a public pool or a health club and go there. The swimming options are endless without the need for you to take on the liability to, and overextend yourself financially. Additionally, you can always build a pool later when you are on better financial footing. With the news that First Republic Bank is out of business, are you concerned about the banking industry? No. The likely scenario is that some of the weaker banks will disappear or be taken over. Um, the stronger banks will continue to get stronger, in my opinion. Also, I'm pretty confident the government will jump in and facilitate 
but unwinding of any sizable bank when necessary. Again, that's just me guessing. Um, this type of washout of weak companies happens during every economic downturn. This isn't new. The economic cycle follows a predictable model, as does human nature. When times are good and money is cheap, people make imprudent decisions. When times are bad, that imprudent behavior has consequences, which are layoffs and bankruptcies. We'll get through this. It just may take a few more months. Next question is, diversification doesn't work. My performance has trailed the S&P and has basically been flat the past few years. Why not just put my money in an index fund and call it a day? So your question is a bit of a mess with a few different components. So let's break it down so I can address each point directly. First, you said diversification doesn't work. The concept of diversification is simply not having all your eggs in one basket. It's a good way to ensure that you don't blow yourself up unless you're invested exclusively in crypto SPACs and highly leveraged real estate deals run by your broke brother-in-law. The concept and strategy of diversification is sound despite your frustration. Then you said my performance has trailed the S&P and has basically been flat the past few years. So is the S&P 500, which represents the 500 largest companies in the U.S., is it the appropriate benchmark to assess your success? Or do you have exposure to small international emerging market companies and bonds? If the latter is true, then the S&P 500 is not relevant benchmark for your overall portfolio. You can only compare the S&P 500 to the performance of large cap actively managed funds. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. Additionally, looking to outpace an arbitrary benchmark is not a sensible goal. When S&P 500 was flat from 2000 to 2010, but you had a return marginally better, would that have been a success? Remember, your sole benchmark as an individual investor should be your ability to achieve your goals. The next part of your question was, why not just put my money into an index fund and call it a day? Remember, there are thousands of indexes and hundreds of funds that track those indexes. You can and probably should use index funds when managing your money, but tossing your money into an arbitrary index fund without regard for what index it is tracking, as well as your time horizon, goals, and risk tolerance is nonsensical. In fairness, I do understand your frustration with being diversified, and keep in mind, implementing a diversified portfolio means you will always lag a whole bunch of indexes and also outperform others. Over the long run, which I assume is your time horizon, it is sensible and an effective way to allocate capital in, an or in order to manage risk and reach your objectives. Next question. Do you think we will retest the October lows in the market? The correct answer to this question is I don't know and I don't care. Any honest person will say that. Sadly, that doesn't sell well on cable news or to certain investors looking for bold predictions and exciting market timing strategies that won't work. The key is not to focus on predictions of what might happen. Rather, it's to focus on making good decisions over time. A process for making good financial decisions about investing and financial planning will be successful. This includes staying diversified across asset classes, maintaining a healthy savings rate, automating those savings, taking advantage of tax-deferred accounts, and more. If you try to time the market, you will lose money. Don't worry, worry about retesting the lows. It's an irrelevant data point. I have a normal nine-to-five job, but I think I can be a successful influencer. What are some financial planning tips you recommend before I make the jump? My first tip is you should reconsider. Most influencers don't make any reasonable amount of money. I have no data to support this, but posting motivational messages, a video of themselves strutting around in a new outfit, and the pictures of your food while garnering 26 likes on Instagram ain't going to make you much money. Second, 
have at least one year emergency fund. So when you realize that this is not a practical career path after nine months, you won't have to liquidate your other investments or live on the street. Third, try to develop your following and make money while you're still working full time in your normal job. If you develop a significant amount of traction, then you can jump ship or, and this is more preferable, work part time and then gradually move to a career in influ influencing. Sure, this may be hard, but it will help you prepare for a career as an influencer. Successful people need to work hard and grind it out. The road to easy street is through the sewer. You should be prepared. Bottom line, proceed cautiously. And the last question for this week is I'm going to retire in around 10 years and only have around $250,000 in cash and investments. Where can I park my money to earn enough to retire? You're asking the wrong question. The question is how can you save more to retire? It is unlikely that you will find an investment to achieve high enough returns consistently to get you to where you want to be and what you need to be for retirement. Sure, de developing a good investment strategy makes sense and will be helpful, but no investment can make up for your years of not saving. And now is a good time for me to share some words of caution. There will always be charlatans who claim that they can achieve the returns you need. Again, they are charlatans. It's highly unlikely that any investment consistently attain returns to grow your nest egg to a large enough amount where you can retire comfortably. Unless you plan on relocating to Vietnam or Bulgaria where the cost of living is drastically lower than the U.S., then you need to have a practical game plan and saving a lot more money every year must be part of that strategy. Okay, that's it for the financial questions this week. Again, feel free to email me any questions you have and I might answer them in a future episode. Now for this week's quote, which is from baseball player and part-time philosopher Yogi Berra, who said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. At its face, this quote doesn't actually make sense. However, so much of the financial services industry, what you watch on the new cable news, read in personal finance magazines, and hear on the radio is about making predictions of what the market or a specific subset of the market will do in the future. But making predictions is hard, and humans are not very good at it especially in the short term. Over the long term, the markets tend to rise. However, in the short term, nobody actually knows what will happen. The lesson here is to ignore predictions. They may be fun to discuss with friends, listen to, but should not be taken seriously or used as a guideline to tweak and adjust your portfolio. It's far better to design an investment strategy based on your goals, time horizon, and risk tolerance and ignore what the talking heads think may happen. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.